My name is Dr. Eleonora Toplinski. I am a breast and gynecologic medical oncologist. I am the head of breast medical oncology at Valley Health System in New Jersey and a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine in Mount Sinai. Dr. Toplinski, there's a joke about people being Dr. Google, where they look up information online and they think they're experts. People can also believe things that really aren't true that they read in social media or online. And as a doctor, what are your thoughts about information online? And you have written about it. I think that it's great that patients are becoming advocates. They are empowering themselves to know about their disease, their medications, their treatment. And there's something called the rise of the e-patient, the expert patient, which I think is actually really, really important because it creates a much better patient-physician relationship. And so I, I think that a lot of the push toward educating oneself and advocating for oneself is fantastic. But on the flip side, you do have to be careful with what you read on social media and what you read on the internet in general. And as a result of that in oncology, we have seen a significant rise of online misinformation. And there are certainly a number of reasons why that happens. But the first advice that I talk to patients about is I say, I do want you to read. I do want you to be educated, but really be mindful of where you're getting that information and who is writing it and what their credentials are. And you call your article uh, this distinguishing fact from fiction. And I would imagine, especially with medical information, getting misinformation can actually be dangerous. It really can. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot published out there. Patients will take that to mean truth. And partly, you know, there's a number of reasons why that happens. One of them, there's such an echo chamber that exists, meaning that you can kind of find yourself getting information that supports what you're looking for. And then that creates a confirmation bias where you see what you're looking for and you find it and you believe it. And there's a lot of people that are sharing their anecdotal experiences. And I think that those experiences are helpful. So for example, if you want to know how you're going to feel on chemotherapy, hearing about what other people experience, I think gives you that some information, but that doesn't take to mean that's what you will experience. So sometimes, unfortunately, what we'll see is people who have read information online and say, well, that's also going to happen to me. And then they don't want to proceed with the treatment. And so I think that taking a step back and saying, how does this information that I found online align or not align with what my doctor has told me? And then bringing that information to your healthcare professional and saying, hey, let's talk about it. What do you think about this? So I think using online information to enhance the conversations, to enhance your education and your knowledge, that is how we can really utilize it the best. But it shouldn't replace the information being given to you by your medical team. I suppose like when you're talking about oncology and you have cancer and maybe it's not going well, you would grasp on to anything that would give you hope. So exactly. as you, you were talking about the echo chamber, that's hard to battle against, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Especially if you have, you know, let's say an aggressive cancer or a cancer that is progressing despite all current standard available treatments, it's natural to look and want to find something else. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, misinformation does occur because, again, we're finding one person's experience or we're finding information that is not yet studied in large-scale mm. clinical trials. It's not yet FDA approved. 
And so I think we do have to be careful, but there is this natural instinct to want to find something that can be helpful. And, you know, I will say that as an oncologist, when patients come to me with information that they found online or something that they want to try, I don't always say no. I think that it's a discussion about, well, what are the benefits? What are the risks? And making a decision that is patient-centered, I think is really, really critical. Do you ever find people get mad at you, angry at you, if you say, well, let's consider what you have and maybe debunk what they've brought in on the internet? This is such a strange topic because people get so invested in what they find on the internet, they're not almost ready to let it go in some cases. I agree. I think that the most important thing I try to do as an oncologist is before starting to have this conversation, kind of set out the goal of the conversation and even say, you know, we may not agree on this and we may in fact disagree or argue on this topic. But let's come to the table trying to be as open-minded and hear both sides. And I think that sometimes when I am approached with information that is not either validated, not evidence-based, not approved, I try to take a step back and think about what the patient is experiencing. They are looking for something that will help them. And instead of getting angry or defensive, I think viewing it from their perspective helps us come to the table much more clear-headed. So I am don't have patients getting angry or stomping out because I really try to take a step back and think about what they are feeling at that yeah. moment. Would you talk about, for a moment, you talk about health misinformation in your article and you distinguish between misinformation and disinformation, which I think is important. Could you discuss that for a moment? Absolutely. So misinformation is information that is false or inaccurate or misleading according to the best available evidence at that time. And I think this is an important point because sometimes what we thought was true five years ago is now no longer true. And so we have to kind of always stay current when we think about misinformation. Misinformation, though, is not the same as disinformation. And that is actually defined as a coordinated or a deliberate effort to circulate misinformation in a way to knowingly gain power, money, or reputation. And so kind of an example of this is if someone is just sharing their experience, well, I tried this and this was my experience, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's misinformation. Whereas disinformation is someone who's now selling this product that we know is dangerous or doesn't work and they're gaining something from that. So talk about social media. This has a whole new layer because you're talking to people who are in your life, who are maybe family members or friends or friends of friends. Does that add an extra wrinkle when it comes to medical misinformation as far as you're concerned? It can. You know, I think social media really is powerful because it does allow you to connect with a community, which we didn't necessarily have before. And I think that can be really, really helpful. But at the same time, if you are on social media and you're sharing your story, sometimes you do get unsolicited advice from family and friends. And I think that happens even outside of social media, but maybe online, it just happens to a larger scale. And I always have this conversation with my patients that, look, you're going to get a lot of information. You're going to get people who want to help you. You have to decide how you're going to approach all of this unsolicited advice. Are you going to look into it? Are you going to say, thank you, but I have a medical team that I trust? But I think being prepared 
to handle all that information coming at you is really important. How would you advise patients to approach the information that they get online? What should they look for in a source? That's a great question. The first step is really asking, where is this information coming from? So if you're browsing Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and you see something post, go to the source. A lot of times you'll see something retweeted. Go to that patient or that person's profile and they should have, if it's credible, they should have their credentials on their bio. What is their background? Do they have a website? And so that's the first step in trying to understand the information. The challenge with that is that being able to vet credible health information requires a certain degree of literacy. It's hard to do to figure out, is this good? Is this bad? And sometimes it's easier just to take it for face value. So I think that's the first step. And if you're not sure, making sure that you have a healthcare team that you can bring this information to and say, I found this. I'm not really sure what to do with it. Can you help me? That's critical. And so it's so important to have a healthcare team that is willing to talk to you about these things and that you can trust. If you're dismissed by your healthcare provider, I think that's a bad sign too. It suggests that they don't want to take the time to really answer your questions or deal with your concerns. The problem is that in healthcare, there is such limited time. And I think that the way to make sure that your questions are going to be answered is to have that conversation up front with your oncologist or any of your healthcare providers and say, how can I reach you if I need you? What is the expectation in terms of turnaround time for answering my questions? Can this be done in a, let's say, patient portal message? Can it be done over the phone? Is it a visit? So having those expectations up front about how you can access your healthcare team is really crucial because then you understand, okay, I they said my questions are going to be answered at my visit, so I'm going to make a list of them. Otherwise, there's kind of a, a miscommunication that can occur about what needs and what they're actually getting. If you have a loved one who can come with you to appointments, I always mention this because it's something that is so easy that you can do. And sometimes you get caught up in you hear one thing and you're off thinking about worst case scenarios as you're sitting in front of the doctor. Whereas if you bring a loved one along and you have these questions written down, I think that can help. Absolutely. We suffered a lot from this during the COVID pandemic. And it's really wonderful to see that we are allowing loved ones, family members, friends back in to the exam room. Because I think that having an advocate there is so critical because there are going to be times in your healthcare that you cannot advocate for yourself. And you need to have that someone else as a second pair of ears, someone who can just take the notes down to then help you process it after that visit. How has the pandemic influenced this medical misinformation that we're seeing now? I think it's too early to tell. I I don't think that we've really gathered that information. But what we have seen is, at least in oncology in the last two years, and perhaps fostered by the pandemic, there has been a growth of utilization of social media. And I speak of it more anecdotally about this, just in my practice, that Mm -hmm. people are turning online because they weren't able to gather for in-person support groups, right? They weren't able to gather with their friends that they normally would seek support from. So people are going online, they're joining communities. But I think in terms of how that is going to affect misinformation is a little bit too early to tell. You mentioned that steps to address misinformation have been proposed by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And this happened in a 2020 roundtable on health literacy. What is being done at this level? 
Well, I think that the first step really is kind of everything that we've talked about. So, you know, using tools to identify and access the credible information, so figuring out how exactly to do that, improving scientific literacy. And that means helping our patients understand their disease, understand how to read about their disease, having tools online available that are patient-centered and patient-friendly and partnering with trusted social media, donor advocates, and trusted professionals. And to that degree, you know, we are seeing more and more doctors and health professionals get online. And I think that is so important, having a medical presence on social media, because that's where the patients are going. We've got to be present where the patients are. And I think that that's really changing. We are seeing more healthcare professionals get online. And I think making it easier for them to do that really will start to change the culture. Is there anything that you personally flag for patients and say, you know what, this has not been proven to be true, or you should take this information that you are reading here with a a grain of salt, I guess, flagging any misinformation that particularly troubles you? One of the biggest things that we see is the use of multitudes of supplements, different herbs, things like that. And that's not to say that there is not a role for certain supplements and herbs because there is. But unfortunately, sometimes those can create dangerous situations like fatal liver damage. And so we really have to be mindful and careful about all of these extra things that people put in their body, especially when they're on treatments such as chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Well, you've been great. Anything else you want to mention? No, I think we kind of, we've covered it. The last thing that I would say is it's so important to have a team that you trust in healthcare because there is going to be all this information coming at you always. And so having that support network, having a trusted, trusted team to help you vet that information is really important. And as always, make sure you're up to date with your cancer screening, with your mammogram, with your pap smear, with your colonoscopy. I always try to put that in there whenever we can because you don't want that to fall behind. How can can you make sure that you get the most out of your healthcare provider? I think really having that conversation about, you know, how the communication will happen is important and coming prepared to your visit. Understanding that yes, you may have limited time and so really coming with your questions, maybe prioritizing your questions and making another visit if you need to. We are all limited by certain constraints mm-hmm. and I think just really I think the preparation is the most important. I have a lot of times people say, oh, I forgot, you know, what I was going to ask. And, and then they remember, you know, when they've left the visit. So yeah. making a list of questions so that you do get what you need answered. And if it's, you haven't had all of it answered, saying, can I come back and make another visit? It's okay to ask for that. That's important. And it's so easy. And you don't think about it until you're walking out the mm-hmm. door, or you're driving home and you're thinking, oh, I should have asked that. Exactly. You have been fantastic. Anything else you want to add? No, that's it. Thank you so much for this opportunity.